man, did this guy go through two days of spring practice and be like, man, no, I ain't hanging around. <laughs> like, you know, like it, it, I know that's probably not what happened, but it. Welcome into the Dog Dispatch. I'm John Smith at John Tweet Sports. I'm here with my good buddy Coach Hayes at Coach Hayes Huddle. Coach, how are we doing today? Doing great, John. Looking forward to talking some all things football today. Yeah, it's been a busy listen. It's the off season. The Super Bowl just happened. We are uh, we are missing uh, missing football in a big way. Um, oh, no. But the off season, there's there's still all kinds of things to talk about. Before we get into that, if you are new to the show, thanks for tuning in. Would love for you to hit the the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube, a follow button if you're um, listening to this via podcast. Definitely hit the like uh, on the video; it just helps us uh, grow the show. We really appreciate y'all tuning in, um, Coach. What do you think of the Super Bowl before we before we dive into other things? Well. You know, I look at it and, you know, it was my my predictions kind of held true. I figured San Fran would do what they did. It's just hang around, make us think that there was some hope that we could uh, see Kansas City be dethroned. But it just seemed to me, too, it was just too much at the end when they went into overtime. I, I, yeah. I thought without a doubt that Kansas City, and once they kicked the field goal, then Kansas City had the ball to basically win with a touchdown. I said, here it goes. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty much as I thought on the script to uh, – them to win the game no doubt yeah yeah i think the overtime you know everybody talked about the overtime choice i don't know if there's a right or wrong answer it definitely no. you know there is the um if both teams score if it's tied after the after each team has a possession then the next team wins so maybe you take the ball first because then you would get the ball third and have a chance you to win with sudden death. yep yeah but I don't know, man. I think if you're if you're not certain you're gonna score a touchdown, I think it's uh very difficult to to leave Patrick Mahomes uh, the ball in Patrick Mahomes' hand. But very surprised too that a lot of their players, you know, that they interviewed did not understand the overtime rules. They thought it was basically from the same type of sudden death, you know. And so you know, coach, that that's very that's, odd. that's preparation though. That none of your teams that wouldn't have happened uh on any teams where you were on staff. Without a so, doubt. I mean, we scrutinized everything we could. I down to the last I dot T cross. I mean, it is it is all about the detail and all about the preparation. Uh, well, we we are going to dive in today. We're going to talk a little bit about the coaching carousel. Um, we're going to talk about big transfer uh, that Georgia landed uh, over over the week, um, and then uh, we'll we'll end this with a little bit of of top twenty five talk. But before we get into all that, um, the coaching carousel continues to spin, and man, it has been. One of the wildest off seasons for coaching changes um, that I've seen, not just with the number of changes, right? There, we see coaches move around all the time. The coaching carousel that that moniker exists for a reason. That thing spins a lot. I think what's been interesting, what we've been seeing, is the types of moves that coaches are making. You have head coaches at Power 5 schools and head coaches in in really good jobs at Group of 5 schools leaving their post to go be an assistant at another Power 5 school. Um, You had Chip Kelly, who left UCLA to go be the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. You had Sean Elliott, who we'll kind of dig into a little bit here, but Sean Elliott left Georgia State. He had been the head coach for the last seven years. Um, He leaves to go be the tight ends coach at South Carolina. 
Um, these are guys who, you know, establish head coaches. These aren't guys who, you know, had their first like couple of years and realized like this head coaching thing isn't for me. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, these are guys who who had built a career um, moving in, into head coaching roles and then made these sudden decisions to move and not just to move, but the timing to move. Georgia State in particular, uh, I want to talk about because we're we're based in the state of Georgia. We talk about Georgia, uh, the University of Georgia sports, but but this is very peripheral to that. Um, Georgia State, as of this recording, so we're recording uh, on Thursday night. As of our recording, Georgia State has paused spring practice. They've canceled their spring game for now. You have a coach who, who three days into spring practice starting um, says, I'm out. The timing is what's interesting for me. And so what I want to get your take on is uh, a couple things. Number one, what do you make of this movement, right? How much of it is related to this new college football world where you have NIL, you have coaches having to re-recruit their roster, you have coaches having to fundraise, their G5 coaches like Sean Elliott losing his good players to the power five, you know, um, how much of it do you think is related to that? And then more importantly, from your perspective as a coach, what, what does this do to a football team when you're leaving a few days into spring practice? Like, what does that mean for the coaching staff? What does it mean for the players? Um, what preparation goes into spring practice? And then, you know, for that, for a coach to leave, like what kind of disruption that to, does that cause? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on any and all of that in whatever order you want to tackle it. Wow, that's a loaded question to run with there, but I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity to talk to you about it. It's uh, it's hard already when before NIL, pre-NIL, pre-transfer portal, already in college athletics, it was it's very taxing. I know from a high school perspective that if you coach you don't ever have time off. Roughly, if you're lucky, you're going to have time off a little bit in January and February, but you're still doing some type of preseason training. You're in the weight room. You're doing one-on-ones. You're getting ready for spring. So in high school now, it's almost become a year-round event, and you're so taxed with that. College, it just triples, probably quadruples because of the amount of recruiting that goes into it. There's so much... um, you know, just microscopic functions that have to take place because there's all these things that are going on. The kids have to be academically eligible. They're constantly in the media. You're having to deal with all of those drama concepts that they have to deal with, not to mention you've got to coach them and you've got to stay with them. I I would say that when you look at it, you know, even from Coach Saban's standpoint, as far as his retirement, that kind of caused a wrench because you saw that the kids had an immediate 30-day window to be able to move, and we just saw that whole snowball melt. Uh, it seemed like over a month. So to watch these guys, typically as a coach, you would love to see the fact that if you're wanting to go somewhere, you aspire as a position coach to move to a coordinator's position. And over time, develop and build tenure and build experience and and build a, a repertoire. Uh, you know, you build a network of people that put trust in you because you do a good job eventually to work to be a head coach. Whether it be a group of five or power five program, honestly, to have the HC by your name is huge mm-hmm. because it, to me, it profiles you in so many different ways. So to watch what happened at Georgia State, I find it to be almost comical because it's like, and I know there's a lot of preliminary reports out there and we're speculating on what we just know. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I'm not really sure. It's like, let's just take our ball and go home because we can't compete now because our head coach has left. It it can be, it can basically throttle 
your program, it completely yeah. disrupts your chemistry. I would hope to think that they would have somebody in place as an interim coach that could take over someone that's in the wing, possibly that's looking to become a head coach that would like to have the opportunity to take this on, even though it will yeah. be a little bit kind of disheartening because as a player, you kind of build your trust in your coaching staff and to see your head coach leave that impromptu is just hard to probably digest. So you're going to see this kind of deal going forward because especially with group of five, you mentioned it with these guys that are leaving and going from G5 to power five programs. And you're watching it every year, trying to just keep your kids to compete at the level they're competing at. And uh, you know, it's really unique because I see that they're leaving to go to these other schools for lateral and even lesser opportunity because it takes the stress off. That doesn't mean they still they get to coach, but the just the stress levels are less because they just don't feel like they can compete with what's going on today with NIL, with Transfer Portal, and coaches having to constantly re-recruit their rosters every year. Yeah, listen, um, uh, the stresses of, of a head coach in college football are real and apparent. The calendar, everybody's talked about it. We don't have to we don't have to beat that that horse to death. Um that horse is already dead. And, uh, and <laughs> yes, it is. you know, but what, but what I, but what I will say is, um, th- this, the Sean Elliott situation in particular is so perplexing to me because it was obviously a shock to Georgia State. Like it took that whole, it took that whole organization, uh, by surprise. Um, and it was interesting to me too. It, it, you know, it's I, I joked with somebody. I was like, "Man, did this guy go through two days of spring practice and be like, man, no, I ain't hanging around.' <laughs> like, you know, like it, it. I know that's probably not what happened, but it does feel like it's like, man, you, you know, you you went through two two days of uh, of of your team like gearing up of of literally um, the most important few weeks of the off season, um, and then you decide to peace out, and so that. That to me is just the most perplexing with this. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that happen. And if that is related to what's going on in college football, something's got to give because, I mean, you know, Chip Kelly and Sean Elliott are not, you know, these weren't, these aren't, weren't guys that were bastions of, uh, of head coaches, right? Like these weren't guys that were competing for titles. They weren't guys that were, you know, uh, that were really like, you know, so tuned in, um, to the competition, um, that it was super shocking to see either of them step away. Right. Like I think anybody can look and say, man, they probably weren't going to have a good team. Like that's probably why they left. (laughs) They had another opportunity. They weren't going to have a good team. Um, but, but I still, to me, it's it's just uh, maybe I'm old school. But man, like when you talk about commitment, you talk about a head coach, you talk about you got a staff that you've put together, you got jobs that are depending on you, you got players who are depending on you to be there, um, and you and you have built a program ready for spring training and for you to bounce. Um, man, just very very shocking. Um, I was I was really perplexed by that whole situation too because um, I was trying to perceive the fact of I'm thinking about leading up to spring practice. I'm sitting there going, okay, he had to have meetings with his coaches. He had to have meetings with his returners. He had to probably have some type of like, like get after it speech. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that first day and talking about commitment and loyalty and, you know, being all you can be and all those good things you say as a head coach day one of, of spring as you're starting to prep. 
And then, like you say, after two days, it's just like, see ya. Yeah. So, you know, the writing may be on the wall. He may have saw something that really just made him go, you know what? I just can't do this anymore. Or like I said, it was just more appealing for him to say, listen, I'd rather be in a, you know, a power five, you know, SEC program where the yeah. stress is less and well, I don't have to fool with this anymore. Well, he was the interim head coach at, uh, at South Carolina uh, before mm-hmm. he came to Georgia State. I mean, he was in South Carolina for for six or seven years. Um, mm-hmm. His family is still there, so I know you know maybe that played a part. I know his family. Yeah. And he has he has teenage kids who go to school in Columbia. Um, let's talk. Let's shift it now. You know more toward toward Georgia. This is the dog dispatch. We are going to talk about Georgia sports. Um, mm-hmm. Does this you know in your opinion? And this is you know obviously us. I have no inside information related to this and don't claim to have inside information related to coaching moves. Um, do you have a sense that, that Georgia state would come knocking for uh, anybody on the Georgia staff? And if you do like who, you know, who, who do you think that might be? And do you think any of these guys would leave for Georgia state? I believe there's a, there's a couple I've speculated on this and actually posted it through Twitter. If there's to me, one that it just stands out is Brian McClendon. Mm-hmm. I see that him being a possibility, you know, I, I don't see that there's necessarily this, you know, where he is at right now, where he has moved around in the receiver core and working as co-offensive coordinator and what he did when he was at South Carolina, of course, what he did at Oregon. It just seems to me you're wanting to look to have that head coaching, you know, name title beside your name sooner than later and, you know, being that it's local to him, to me, he would be a prime candidate. I believe you said something about with the history of him as well. Well, well there's yeah, some history yeah. already there. Yeah, so Brian McClendon interviewed for this job when Sean Elliott got the job. So the last time yes. this job was open, Brian McClendon was one of the candidates for the job. And right. Brian McClendon, you know, he was uh, – <laughs> He was the interim head. He's been an interim head coach uh, for two games, one at Georgia when Mark Rick uh, got fired mm-hmm. or resigned um, and mm-hmm. one at Oregon when um, when Mario Cristobal left for Miami. And so, right. you know, this is a guy that has been in the seat of like the next, you know, for all intents and purposes, the next man up on staff. Um, he was he, he's held uh, offensive coordinator and co-offensive coordinator roles at South Carolina and at Oregon right. and, uh, uh, and at Miami. And. Now he's, you know, a passing game coordinator, wide receiver coach at the best college football program um, in in America. But mm-hmm. still, it is, you know, it's not a coordinator role. It's not uh, it's not calling plays. It's not um, a head coach building the staff. And, and he's obviously had those aspirations. And he's a young guy. You know, he's only 40 years old. Uh, got a lot right. ahead of him. So um, I think, yeah, I do think with his history, um, not only in not only, you know, Coaching at Georgia, he coached at Georgia a, a long time. You know, yeah. prior uh, eight years or so prior to Kirby Smart um, mm-hmm. on Mark Rick's staff, and so right. um, I do think that is that is one that um, that I know other outlets have also said. You know, may have some interest in the role. Um, I'm really, I was going to say too. I'm really interested too because this is a guy who I really love, and I'm going to hate to see when he finally does take a head coaching yeah. role, but. Another name to kind of tickle is Del McGee. You know, yeah. I look at him as the running back coach has been the stable, been in the stable now for a long time, been very loyal to his coaching yeah. staff that he's been a part of. But I just see him being that next guy that takes that leap. And I don't know mm-hmm. if it means to go to a group of five, but yeah. like I said, a lot of coaches are looking to get that HC by their name. And it's, if you do it, you know, it, it leads to other things. It helps network you. It helps get you out there. And yeah. uh, builds that trust factor with other people. And then all of a sudden you're looking at better opportunities going forward. So 
I would say Brian McClendon first, and I would say a short second would be Dale McGee possibly yep. as well. Yeah, I mean, Dale McGee, you know, seven years as a, a head coach in Georgia High School um, mm-hmm. down in Columbus. Um, and, you know, I think I think there is there is that path, right? The path, um, mm-hmm. I believe, the path to a head coach uh, still still runs through through two paths in Division One, Group of Five, Power Five. It It is um, – you either have coordinator experience, you have play calling experience on your resume in some form or fashion, defensive, offensive, maybe even co-offensive or co-defensive coordinator, right. uh, or you move to from a strong position coach, uh, move into a head coaching role at a group of five um, and work your way up from there. So um, right. I do think that Del McGee, you know, checks both of those. Um, I Hopefully, you know, if I, I I'm, I'm selfishly hoping it's like, yeah, go get uh go take Buster Faulkner from Georgia Tech. <laughs> yeah, like, Buster go, Faulkner from Georgia get, Tech. Yeah, get that, yeah, get yeah, get that guy. Leave leave these this Georgia staff alone. Um uh but we'll see how that shakes out. A, a lot of interesting yeah, things right. happening um in in the coaching world. All right, we're going to change gears and we're going to take a real real hard left. Um not that hard left. It's related to transfer portal, to calendar, to, you know, all these things, but um, Georgia picked up a big, t- a big tight end, uh, both figurative, figuratively and literally, uh, over the last week. Ben Urasek from Stanford, six foot four, two hundred forty-two pounds. Um, he played in just six games last year due to an upper body injury, but the two years before that, he caught ninety-one balls for eleven hundred yards. Um, very productive uh, tight end at Stanford, um, and the guy that has so many of the traits that Todd Hartley uh, seems to want and desire in a tight end um coach you've done some film breakdown um we're going to roll a little bit of film here as we talk but tell me a little bit about um two things before we rolled the film and see ben urasek why did georgia get a tight end of all positions from the transfer portal and uh and what are we what are we expecting uh what do we expect now this guy well todd hartley man you talking about just having a just sort of a room of wealth of what mm-hmm. he's dealt with, you know, having brought Bowers over the last three years, I know it's probably spoiled him, but I mean, if you still look prior to even Brock, what he brought in with, uh, with Washington, obviously, and then Brock coming in, even the guys prior to with Warner and Fitzpatrick, I mean, we've just had solid play at the tight end position. And, you know, I, I'm really curious about as they add him to the tight end room you think that Oscar Delt probably has the upper hand in, you know, being the primary guy this year, being the primary why. Where Lawson Lucky and Pierce Sperling would probably provide some support to that in 12 personnel, even 13 personnel. By bringing him in, I was curious. I had actually speculated this on my film breakdown. Is Does Georgia have a sense to think that maybe their next tight end up for 12 personnel when they want to run it is – Lawson Lucky maybe not mm. producing the way they thought. You know, I've heard so many good things about Lucky that it made me really wonder because I'm thinking maybe they're bringing him in because they just need that depth. And because he has experience, he has the body and the framework to be a quality tight end for our program. You know, is that pushing Lawson Lucky and Pierce Sperling to the curb maybe for one more year of growth and uh, going from there? So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I'm not sure. Right now, I want to speculate on the side that Kirby's always wanting to bring people in to provide depth so you continue to stay hungry and don't get complacent in the mindset of um, competing at a high level and not feeling like you are the guy at all times, that somebody could take your spot any second and it makes you work harder. 
the best, you know, best way you get out of kids when you're coaching them is get them to compete. They need competition. That's so mm-hmm. huge. And so um, I'm just going to go ahead and chalk it up right now to say that I think Lucky and Sperlin are going to have opportunities, uh, mm-hmm. but they're bringing him in for the depth that they need to add some just extra strength to their 12 and 13 personnel. Um, but like I said, his skill sets are wonderful. Uh, when you look at his his framework, um, he really fits more of a comp towards Oscar Delp than he does any of the other ones. But I think he's faster than Oscar. Um, he just has a long body with long legs with a high catch radius. And, um, he seems to be able just to find space to catch the football. I really feel like when I'm watching him, I do see a little bit of Oscar Delp in him just in how he runs. He's kind of upright, but there's a lot of things that Stanford used him with that. I really see Georgia paralleling which is like the end around and reverses. I know most people who saw just a comp of video on him was showing the end around and watching him just break away like a galloping horse. When he gets to running, man, his long legs carry him absolutely. And he's deceivingly fast for Mm -hmm. his size as well. You'll probably see in the breakdowns of him as he's running. I believe we've got a clip against uh, Notre Dame where he is going to catch a you know it looks like kind of a dig or a under Sam over Mike route and he just deceivingly runs away from the crowd right here. Yep. Um you just don't, you know, when you're watching it right here, you're thinking, okay, this guy's gonna get caught in the next five yards, but he just continues to gain ground and get away from those guys and actually takes it to the house. So I don't really think there's a skill set per there's an inner round right there like you would see yep. Brock run or what we've run with uh yep. some of our other tight ends. But you know, I really feel like he does bring a separate skill set. He's not just another blocking tight end. He has a very tall body. He has long arms. He's not afraid and has no fear to go across the middle of the field. He'll catch the ball in triple coverage, double coverage, mm-hmm. bracketed underneath, mm-hmm. being chased in man underneath, and he just finds a way to come down with a football. So the biggest issue that we're going to see from him is, like you said, he was hurt last year. So, you know, one of those things is we've got to get him healthy. I'm sure he'll be in the weight room and our nutrition system. We're going to take care of him and get him, you know, solidly ready to go. But one thing that we're going to have to definitely improve upon, just like I'm sure when it came down to like Eli Wolf, uh, to Trey McKitty, those guys that came in that weren't necessarily the best run blockers in the world, they are going to have to improve his run blocking skills because I believe from his uh, stats and analysis of stats, his run blocking percentage was very low but i don't have any you know any doubt that our that our staff and coach hartley will have him ready become spring and into the summertime where you're going to see his run blocking ability improve and it just adds to already a great dimension of his catching radius and his catching ability and catching the ball in space yeah yeah i mean you you mentioned it you know i think um i think when you look at least last year, um, uh, he wasn't the best run blocker, you know, in terms of, um, in terms of, if you, if you look at PFF grades, for example, um, he, right. was, he was graded around a 57 for the six games that he played, um, was, uh, it was, that was actually his, his best year <laughs> run blocking, um, right. of the three years. So he I actually got better. a smaller sample size. But yeah, yeah, exactly. No yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> no so doubt. that's, what's, that's, what's interesting to me, right? What's interesting to me is that if you look at the way that, that Georgia is, is built, Georgia has an incredible tight end room. 
So no one's going to argue with uh, with the with the with the tight end room that Todd Hartley has put together. But one of the things that Georgia doesn't have in that tight end room is a lot of experience, right? I mean, you look at you look at guys like um, like Pierce Sperlin. I mean, the the kid barely played last year, and then he was right. he was injured the year before that, and so. While you do have these guys like you have Lawson Lucky, you have Oscar Delp, obviously. You have Pierce Sperlin. You have uh you have those two, two, two yeah, those two freshmen, Colton uh, Heinrich and, and, and Jaden Reddle. Yeah, you have mm-hmm. those guys who are just beasts, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't have if you if you if you just go through that lineup we just went through, mm-hmm. if you're gonna run twelve personnel, you got Delp and Lucky, and then hopefully Sperlin has enough experience in the system and is healthy enough that you know you got a you got a third guy there. Mm-hmm. But if one of those guys goes down, gets hurt, yeah. you know, I I think that's why Georgia took this tight end. I think Georgia took this tight end because when you look at that room, even as good as you know as it is, uh, it's not deep. There's not a, right. there's not a lot of depth in that room, um, even though you have those guys. When it comes to the type of depth that Kirby Smart likes to work with right you think about what they did what they did with wide receivers in the portal because of losing um because of losing players um it's a similar thing to me it is building depth and it's also building depth for reps right i mean when you think about practice um practice is so important nobody Mm -hmm. yeah we don't we don't talk about that enough but when you got to run when you got to run good on good and you got to run 12 personnel in a good on good scenario and then you got to run 12 personnel in the Second team, you know, it's it, those numbers add up quickly in terms of who you have and who you don't with experience right. to actually give those looks and run those reps. So, um, I, I'm excited about this guy. I think, I think he, I am know, too. Yeah, I think he's insanely athletic. Um, I don't think that Georgia brought him in. Um, and I'll be clear about this. I don't, a lot of people are making these Brock Bowers comparisons. Um, because they see the guy catch the ball and outrun a defense like Brock Bowers, right? They see the guy get uh, get handed the ball and end around. I don't think Urasek is anywhere in the stratosphere of Brock Bowers. Brock Bowers yeah. is one of the best blocking tight ends that Georgia – one of the best blocking tight ends that any team period. <laughs> has mm-hmm. ever had, period. Uh, Brock Bowers was a full-stack tight end. The dude, he, he could block, he could catch, he could run, he handed to him. Um, he could do all of those things. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think expectations should be high for this guy. I think um, I think he's 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 obviously a, a very good player. Um, but I think Kirby brought him in for depth, and I think yeah. um, hopefully hopefully they get good production out of him. I don't I'm not looking for this guy to replace um, uh, a Brock Bowers type uh, production for this 2024 Georgia football team. Right. And I try my best not to do any kind of comps on anybody. In fact, that's the reason why yeah. I hated to even say he was similar to Oscar Delp. Realistically, yeah. I was just trying to compare his frame and mm-hmm. how he carries his body when he's got the ball in hand or when he's running routes on the route yeah. tree. Realistically, I, I'm just I'm just hoping for the fact that he can stay healthy because he adds definitely a different dimension to the tight end room. And with that being said, you know, I'm hoping that with – Coach Smart, you know, he's looking at the fact of, and I agree with you on the depth component to it. He's definitely wanting to run two, three, and four groups on offense, and that provides the depth that they're going to need. Because you're right, even Lucky fits that same profile as Sperling, where he had the tightrope surgery after his injury. He's had very limited time playing, too. I mean, he, so I do think that does add a different dimension to the tight end room, bringing in someone that has some experience. I also tried to comp this, and that's the reason why, if you notice on film breakdowns, 
Notre Dame was probably the stiffest competition they played. So that's what I was trying to find enough plays from Notre Dame because honestly, when you're breaking down him running away from kids from Hawaii and Kansas State and uh, <laughs> other people like that, it's really tough to make you feel like, hey, this is SEC defenses he's going to be running away from. So that's the reason why I enjoyed the fact that he did have a couple of good highlights against Notre Dame because I thought that would probably be something comparable yeah. in uh, in the, the defenses that he might face when it comes to the SEC. Yeah, just for the record, what we just learned is that Coach has no respect for Hawaii. No. <laughs> for Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii. And Kansas State, and Kansas some of those guys, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, all right, well, it, well, Georgia adds a, as a big guy uh, from the portal. Excited about what Eurosec is doing. Team. All right, last last segment here, uh, and we're gonna get out of here. ESPN released their way too early preseason top twenty-five, and um, boy, was it way too early. <laughs> Without a doubt, man. When I when I look at, at what they release, man, I think that's that's real early. Um, would love for you to you know take a look at this top twenty five. What stands out, Coach? Like what what do you take away from uh, from where ESPN has uh, some of these teams ranked this early? Well, I want to say I've got to get used to molding my brain Texas and Oklahoma now being in the SEC and Oregon up top there being in the in the big 10 now, but really what stands out to me is number five, Notre Dame. I am uh, probably going to hurt some feelings from people that might watch and see this, but I've just never been a Notre Dame fan. I've always felt like they were overhyped, overplayed every year because they had no schedule to really follow playing in the independent league that it seemed like one game, maybe two, almost kind of Ohio state-ish, Michigan-ish, where it seemed like they only had that one game every year they had to win. And that, you know, catapulted them in the playoffs. But Notre Dame, if I remember correctly, with the analytics we broke down, is bringing back 75, 74. Uh, they're ranked 74th yep. nationally in bringing back in return production. And yep. honestly, it really bugs me that here you got two 11-win SEC teams, Ole Miss and Missouri, right there behind mm -hmm. them. Uh, yep. And and again, you just I feel like you've just got an overhyped program that's not really bringing a lot of depth back a team that i watched last year struggle at north carolina state on the road and here they are again in the top five so mm -hmm. that's probably my biggest take in the groups here looking at that other than just getting used to where all these new programs are moving to as well but notre dame is probably my biggest surprise in the top 25 no doubt yeah, and I mean, let's let's just be real about Notre Dame here, right? So you mentioned seventy um, fourth in returning production, mm -hmm. both Ole Miss and Mizzou. Mizzou is thirty first in returning production from an eleven win football team, um, right. and and Ole Miss. Um, we saw what they did in the transfer portal. The number one uh, transfer yes. team uh, in this offseason went out and got you know spent all this money on all these <laughs> all these five stars mercenaries. Um, yeah, to to come in because Lane Kiffin is taking a risk of like, hey, I'm going to build a team. It's a 12-team playoff. My goal is to make be one of those 12 He's all teams. in. Mm -hmm. and, and so for me, like I think if you look at, you know, kind of Notre Dame, the only thing I can take away is maybe the schedule. Like maybe – but I don't understand why you rank somebody number five because their schedule is favorable versus – right? But even in the, in the if you think about their, their schedule being favorable, 
they open up their first game is at Texas A&M, who's ranked it's number twenty five. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. You, so, so you open up with at Texas A&M. You got Louisville. You've got Florida State. Florida um, State. You got you got at USC. Miami. Like you, yeah, I you got they Miami. Play Miami too. Mm-hmm. They do. Yep, yep. So um, they play Miami, Ohio. Um, Miami, Ohio. They yeah, got Virginia. Is what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, but they actually, you know, so they have a pretty favorable schedule, but I don't understand how in the world you can rank Notre Dame ahead of Ole Miss and Mizzou mm-hmm. in particular, much less some of these other teams. But right. these are two 11-win teams returning significantly more production uh, than Notre Dame. <laughs> Let me add one other thing. Uh, yeah. Who played Michigan in the national championship, <laughs> even though I don't remember the national championship very well? Uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was Washington, right? Where in the flip are they at? They're where, not even on here. <laughs> where is just, Washington? Bye-bye. Where is Man. Washington? Man, yeah, uh, you talk about you talk about a team uh, just getting decimated. Lost mm-hmm. your entire coaching staff. Lost your you know what was left of your. Uh, Joe Moore award-winning offensive line. Yeah, um, man, that's a team that that is that is nowhere to be found. Washington is out of 134 teams, they are 130th in returning production. Yeah. Um, and so I think like when you look at that, that's that's probably yeah. But the, but you know, but you also but here's the here's the flip side of it. Okay, mm-hmm. Washington is 130th in returning production. They're not even ranked in the top 25. Michigan is 128th in returning production, and they're ranked number 13. There you go. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Where do those um, metrics fall to give them the compliance of that? Exactly. It's just wild. Well, so my takeaways, uh, I'll ahead. give you one simple singular takeaway, and then we're going to end the show. Georgia is the best college football team going into the 2024 season, the best college football program. Georgia is the team that returns – uh, the, when you look at, at returning production and you look at the players that Georgia is returning and you look at the players who are stepping up that are not, that are not considered returning production, but are stepping into these gaps, Georgia, in my completely biased opinion, nothing wrong with that head and shoulders, uh, above anyone on this list. If the, if whoever put this together, the ESPN committee or FBI, where they used. They got the number one spot right, and um, and I am I am excited about um, to continue to talk about this team. Excited to continue to see how this team develops over the course of this off season, um, and really, really, really uh, looking forward to uh, spring getting in full effect. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, I think next week we'll talk a little bit about NFL Combine, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Yes. Um, I think we'll talk about preparation for uh, for spring spring ball and uh, for G Day. We'll start all that's leading up uh, and coming on fast. We'll be back next week. Uh, if you if you're listening uh, now, good lord! If you made it 35 minutes into this show. Just go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. We appreciate you. Go ahead and hit the like button. We love to have you here. Leave us a comment. Uh, tell us what you want to see from the show. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, I'm John at John Tweet Sports. You can follow Coach at Coach Hayes Huddle, H-U-D-L, on all the social medias, and we will see you next time. 